This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Luke Barnwell is the head coach of Sunrise Christian Academy in Wichita. It is the number one high school basketball program in the nation. He coached Buddy Heald. He coached Kendall Brown at Baylor. Zach Clements. Grady Dick, KU's top recruit for next year, is currently on the team, as is Mark Mitchell, top 10 player in the country, who's headed to Duke. They're the number one team in the country. He's been named coach of the year in the nation for two consecutive seasons. I'm going to ask him, and try and figure out how you can turn a private Christian school in Bel Air, Kansas, into the top high school basketball program in the nation. Kevin Flaherty knows more about Big 12 basketball than anybody I know. He knows more about Big 12 basketball than I know about anything. So we'll preview the Big 12 tournament, get his thoughts on KU heading into the postseason. We'll finish up with a mailbag. We're going to hit a lot of stuff pertaining to the Big 12 tournament. So... No monologue. We're just going to get straight to it because these are two awesome conversations I really think you're going to enjoy. Luke Barnwell is the head coach of Sunrise Christian Academy in Bel Air, Kansas in the Wichita area, the number one high school basketball program in the country and was also named the Naismith High School Boys Coach of the Year for the second consecutive season. Luke, thank you for joining me and uh, congratulations on all your individual and team success this year. It sounds like it's been a pretty fruitful season for you guys. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been it's been an awesome ride with these guys. They've they've been fun to coach. It's it's truly a, a blessing and an honor. Dr. Naismith is his game that he invented 150 years ago has definitely changed my life for the better, and um, just uh, a thrill to be a part of such a such a awesome game with some great kids and a great staff. To, to hopefully, you know, we're one now and we've got some awards and some accolades, but we want to be number one in about a month. That's the that's the goal. So we still got some stuff left to accomplish, but we've done. Uh, had a heck of a season so far. Well, I know at this point, Sunrise has some name recognition. I think for a lot of people around here, it was Buddy Heald for the first time who really started to make people aware of what you guys were doing down there, even if you're not you know, paying close attention to prep basketball. 
Um, but for you, and now, he, I mean, two straight years being the coach of the year in the country, you're probably getting some name recognition as well. I was doing a, a little bit of research on you, and I didn't realize this. You were high school teammates with Tyrell Reed, correct? Yeah. Burlington. Yeah. A few years ago, just a few years ago. Yeah, well... I'm about the same age as you, so I I view high school the same way that you do. Yeah, that seems like a long time ago. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Play for his dad and, and play with size. He's still a friend and um, not a better human being on the planet than Tyrell Reed. Yeah, he's a great dude. I've had a chance to talk to him a handful of times over the years. Um, what was he like in high school? I know that I know that he was a he was a killer at Burlington, man. Yeah, he uh, he worked so. Um, you know, there's probably been a few people I've been around the game. My parents are high school coaches. So I've been around the game for, you know, since I was in diapers, but from my memory, there's probably a few people that worked the way he worked. Um, I would be lying if I said I worked the way he worked. Uh, I, I thought I worked hard until I met Ty. Um, and then the next guy I would say that worked like that was buddy and Tom. Those guys were on another level when it comes to like the amount of effort that they put into the game outside of the practice time and the games that we play. Um, Ty was elite with that and special. How, when did you take over at sunrise? Were you an assistant coach before you were the head coach? Like what's kind of the timeline there? Yeah. So it's a really unique journey. Um, I, I played at Emporia state two years, Newman two years, had to do a victory lap because I transferred and the major that I was at at Emporia state, they didn't have at Newman. So then it kind of reset me and I had to do an extra year. Um, probably could have fought for a medical, you know, fifth year, but, um, I'd had two hip surgeries at that point. It was like, all right, it's probably time to just, uh, hang it up. Um, coach Linstead, whose dad founded the school was a high school coach for a long time. And, um, you know, it would have been nine years ago next month. They, they had the vision to grow the program to post-grad basketball because, it's that there's that gap year where you don't lose eligibility. Um, I think Kansas fans like the, the Morris twins did a fifth year. Uh, Frank Mason did a fifth year. Some of those guys that like, yeah, a lot really, of really, Devonte Wayne's. I mean, yeah, yeah, a lot of those guys who did prep yeah. school for a year. That, that fifth year helps. And so Kyle wanted to start a team, but with um, us trying to win a national championship, you can't have fifth years on, on your high school team. So we basically had to have a full separate team. So when Kyle hired me, I was 22 and I came over and um, started the, the, the post-grad um, we call PGB post-grad basketball program at sunrise. And so I was technically a head coach of 22 um, by myself, no assistance. And, and then I would uh, assist Kyle during his practices. And sometimes when we weren't playing, I would go with Kyle, coach Kyle to, to the high school game. So we actually, um, uh, my first year we played Devonte at Brewster with Donovan Mitchell and beat him by about 25. So uh, it's pretty, pretty fond memory of our program. Just because those are two starting guards in the NBA and we didn't have one NBA player on the team. Well, and now you guys have obviously blossomed into one of the premier programs in the country. So what was that evolution like going from, you know, starting that, that, that post grad program. And now, you know, you had buddy healed, which I, I don't know like how integral yeah. him specifically was to the growth of the program to where you guys are now. Like, what are sort of those benchmark moments that allowed you guys to continue to grow? That's, that's a great question. I think, uh, yeah, Buddy is a huge integral part because right when Coach brought Buddy, that was like right when I was, when he left was right when I was coming in. Um, and they had a phenomenal year the year before I came in high school. And I think they were 29 and one. Um, and we just weren't on the platform that we're on now because they were really stinking good. Um, 
but they just didn't get the opportunities that we have now. And so when I came, Buddy left. And then when, when Buddy has the success he has, it helps you because you can point to like, hey, that's one of our alum. He came and he was in these classrooms and in these, you know, in these houses. And like he did the things that, that you're going to be doing while you're here. And look what the success he has now. If we were going to stand here and take credit for Buddy's success, we we're absolutely crazy because that dude worked <laughs> his tail off every day. Um, and he actually, that's what I that was my first job at Sunrise was uh, summer workouts with him. And I was like, oh, cool. I'll be in the gym for about an hour a day. I had no idea that it'd be like five hours a day, three different workouts. Like he just wore me out. He, his success helped us. And then Coach Kyle, when he hired me, was like, hey, man, I want you to come give me a couple of years. I'll get you a division one job. It was the first time I'd been in an environment where like, people actually care about you and show, you know, you, you get biblical teaching your whole life, but like I was in a, a very concentrated environment where like I saw Christ daily and, and it affected the decisions that I made. Me and Kyle had a conversation about a year and a half into it. It was like, Hey man, if you want to go, you've built this thing. Uh, you've got this thing rolling. You've been here 15 years. Like you deserve the, the, the big paying job and you deserve the, the honor that, that I don't deserve. And I would love to stay here and and keep it rolling. And so naturally it fit to where Wichita state had an opening and he, he drove two miles down the street and took a job there, um, with coach Marshall. And then I transitioned from the postgrad to the high school. And the first year of my high school group, it was kind of a hodgepodge collection of, of guys. But by the end of the year, we ended up getting pretty good. Uh, Cameron McGusty was probably our best player. If you guys remember yeah, big 12, of course. um, he had an unbelievable year for us at the end of the year. We lost at the buzzer to the team that got to, to the national championship game, St. Benedict's prep. So we kind of like, okay, we're, we're not bad. And then um, the next couple of years we went young. I had the thought of like, let's get some juniors and some sophomores and like build and, and, you know, hopefully have them a couple of years. And then that was a, a wise choice thinking at 2020 now, because with, with, with perspective, because we took some lumps the second season, we weren't as good. We'd lost, I think six or seven games. And then, uh, 2017, 2018 is really the year that like, oh my, sunrise is good. The following year, we kind of validated it. And, uh, we went to Geico for the first time. We lost to Jeremiah Robinson Earl in the first round by about 15. He was at IMG. And then, um, the likes of Zach Clements and Kendall Brown, um, those guys came in in, in 2020. 2019, 2020, just a bunch of tough kids. And we got really stinking good at the end of the year. And we were the two seed in the national tournament. And then the world ended, <laughs> the world stopped. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so we didn't get to go play. And so I think the 2019, 2020 year was just as vital as the 18, 17, 18 year, just because it was like, okay, they're not going anywhere. Um, and, and Kendall and Zach were kind of the, the, the keys there. And then the following year, we had Kennedy Chandler to that group with a lot yeah. of guys returning. And when you had the number one point guard in the country with with Kendall Brown as that Clemens, it just it skyrocketed. And Kennedy was tremendous for us. And it was us and Montbert all year. And we beat them once, and they beat us a couple times and beat us in the championship game. So, you know, we, we had a great year last year. And again, probably the beginning of the year this year, people probably would have said, mm, probably not going to be as good. You lose Kennedy, you lose... Kendall, who are both projected, you know, first round draft picks yeah. uh, after one year in college. And Zach obviously is having an impact uh, when he plays at Kansas and um, probably had us, had us written off, but it's been, uh, it's been probably the most fruitful and rewarding season. I think Grady's been tremendous. Uh, Mark Mitchell has been unbelievable. 
So you have two Kansas guys taking a Kansas team to the, to travel the country. And those two guys to me have been the best two players in the country bar none. And they've proven it because of our schedule. And the story is so sweet because they're, they're, they're local homegrown kids and, you know, they're, they're taking us to kind of another level and, you know, with the story still unwritten, hopefully we can write the, the, the storybook ending to it in about a month. But um, that's, that's probably the trajectory of, of kind of how we got where we're at. Can you kind of explain what the process is like for you being the coach of a, a program that has the success you guys have experienced and what the process is sort of deciding what kids you're going to bring into the program, knowing that it's a very limited number of spots that are available? Yeah, it's, it's ever evolving because um, some of the kids, it's, it's just bizarre how um, it's, you know, altered over the years, but some of the kids that we don't want now or say no to, uh, we would have like, you know, died to get eight or nine years ago or seven or eight years ago. So it's, it's ever evolving. But I mean, in the beginning it was, we, we, we were primarily international focused. Um, we had good connections with some, some college programs that had good international recruiting ties and, you know, uh, would help us kind of get some kids over for a year or two. And, um, we really started in the Bahamas with, you know, uh, buddy being our buddy, Hill being our kind of first marquee guy. Uh, and then Tum Tum Naren, who's now back working for us, but ended up playing at Michigan state. Um, so we kind of had a little bit of a, of a deal going there, finding, finding some good, you know, unearthed talent there. But then over the, the last, you know, six or seven years, as we've become more successful, you become more attractive. You become the pretty girl in school. And so everybody wants to to reach out. And so then the process, the last couple of years is let's build uh, a team that we feel like fits uh, puzzle pieces that fit. And it's kind of fun because you feel like you're a GM a little bit and you have to figure out, all right, how do these puzzle pieces fit together? And do we envision this, this, this team being successful? And, um, you know, but we always stay true to trying to find good kids and trying to find kids that'll fit in our environment as a, as a private Christian school. And so it doesn't mean they're all perfect coming in the door. It doesn't mean they're all perfect while they're here, but, um, you know, we got to find kids that can fit in our environment and then ones that really want to work and ones that uh, are willing to do something that's maybe a little bit bigger than just themselves. And so, once you, you kind of keep that narrative on the forefront and you, and you find the, the right positions, the right talent that fits. And um, that's kind of what it's been the last couple of years is, okay, how do we put the best team together versus, you know, the best talent? Cause um, you know, we, we feel like when you put together a good team, you can beat teams with a lot of talent. Oftentimes like major prep programs like y- yourselves, you get compared to as almost college programs, but it's really in terms of roster construction, it's not like college because even the elite colleges are, are out. They have to kind of pitch kids on their school because there are so many attractive options. It's almost more professional than anything else. The way that you guys, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the way that you guys can kind of pick and choose and, and construct that roster, right? Like, do you have to actually go out and, and pitch kids at this point? Yeah. I mean, I think you always have to at some point, but you're right. I mean, it, it, there's less options. Now those options are growing year in and year out. There's more places like ours. Um, some pop up in a, in a garage, some pop up in a strip mall, but uh, we're a real school. So uh, yeah. that, that's what kind of separates us in our league from the majority of the other reps. But yeah, I mean, the, 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 there's less competition, um, but 
I mean, if a kid's going to, you know, if a kid's going to be good enough to, to help us win at the highest level, we're going to have to go beat them out uh, on IMG or Montverde. And they're going to have to beat uh, us or an IMG out or a Bokeel out as the, as their, these kids can look at these few places. And so it gets competitive uh, in, a, in a sense when it gets down to those those places. But um, it, the, the cool thing about our league is we have a good uh, camaraderie with the coaches. And so it's never personal and um, you know, we, we want the kids that want to be here at the end of the day. And so if, if they feel like the other place is better then that's fine, we'll go find somebody that does want to be here. And, and yeah, it's more, it's more kind of that process than like, Oh man, we got to go beat kids' doors down and call them, you know, every day. And like colleges have to. Well, it's, it's really easy to look around at least to like locally look around the big 12 and see your guys sort of footprint. I mean, Kendall Brown's about as fun of a player as there is to watch in the conference. And then obviously at Kansas, you got Zach Clements, Grady Dick, KU fans are excited to see him. You talked about looking for not just the most talented players, but trying to assemble the best team and trying to find the guys who kind of fit that mold. What is it that you look for in that guy that sort of separates, okay, this kid's really talented to whatever that next level is in your mind? Yeah, I think trying to see him play live is, is important or at least watch some some high-level film on him because... You know, for example, I won't say the name, but we were at a place in December this year of a kid that needs to go to a prep his senior year uh, or wants to, excuse me, not needs to. And high, higher level kid. And we watched him play and I watched him play in a half. And I was like, yeah, that kid ain't going to work here. You, you can just tell by how hard they play, you know, the way they carry themselves and how they treat teammates and how they how they compete on the defensive end. It's like if, if they're not willing to do that, currently it's hard to fix that in a one year process. Uh, it's really hard to adjust that in one year. Me get it for a couple of years. You have a little bit more time to kind of to build into what, what you think they could become. But uh, yeah, so we, we try to find kids that want to play hard and then you can easily watch how they interact with their teammates and how they interact with their coaches and how they, how well they're coached. And, and then I think even it's, it's very obvious in about a two or three minute conversation, what this is about. I mean, or, and, and really kids are always kids to me, kids are great. You, you can mold kids, but really what are their parents about? And mm-hmm. then if, 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 if you can get in a conversation in a couple of minutes and know, all right, they're, they're probably our type of people. Yeah, this fits. And then if they're if the conversation leads another direction, you're like, yeah, that's probably not ours. That's fine. You guys, you guys can go find another place. That's good. And then and then we'll try to have to beat him, I'm sure, at some point. But, um, you know, it's just kind of conversation and just and evaluating. Do you remember watching or meeting Zach for the first time? Yeah, we actually played him. So Zach, so Zach, uh, after his freshman year, was going to leave his school, the Antonian in San Antonio. It was a small private school there. And um, he, he visited us uh, before his sophomore year and uh, was thinking about coming to sophomore year. I'm so happy he didn't because uh, we had a really good team that year that that uh, was very deep and very tough. And, and he would have been kind of probably caught in the mix. And he ended up going to Finley. Um, but, but I visited and he was like, he was a smiley, happy go lucky kid and like good parents, good people. They ended up choosing against us. And then we played, we played him in January on, on TV and beat him by about 40. And then he, and then, and then Finley closed and it was like an obvious decision after Finley closed in the, in the spring, his dad and mom called him like, Hey, would you want Zach? Like, absolutely. We love Zach. I loved having you guys on campus and getting to know him. And then it was like, it was done. So, um, but yeah, that, that was a, that was a unique experience to recruit a kid, meet him, have him on campus and then him choose against us and then end up him being here for two more years. What impressed you about him when you saw him play the first time? Uh, skill level, his, his ability to like bounce the ball, shoot the ball. And then, you know, obviously his size, you know, he's big. 
So anybody that can bounce it and shoot it like that with that size to me is a massive asset because he, he could score around the room. And so his senior year, we played a lot of pick and roll with him and Kennedy and basically however they covered that is how we attacked. And if they switched, we would, we would roll them in and post them and um, play through that. Or, or if they didn't switch, he can pick a pop and he shot about, I think he shot over 40% from three for us last year. So he he's kind of that, that Jack of all trades that like, as a coach, if you're coaching against a guy like him, you just, he keeps you up at night because you're trying to figure out how to guard him really. So um, that's what, that's what impressed me. And then just his personality, he's like the nicest kid and smiles all the time and goofy and um, very respectful, you, you, you know, to match that, that, uh, that talent with, with kind of how he carries himself. It was a no brainer for us. What's interesting about him is I think at KU, you've seen him in such limited action and it's tough to draw conclusions on what type of a player a kid's going to be, but because he's he has the shooting ability and you've seen the affinity to want to take those shots the small sample size you say okay this guy's a stretch big he wants to live on the perimeter but i'll never forget the oklahoma game where bill self just kept looking down the bench like looking for another big we need somebody else we need somebody else nobody's getting the job done and zach finally it was his first game back from injury and he gets on the court and he didn't come off the court it's not because i think he hit one three but the reason he stayed on is because he was playing great defense, switching on their big who likes to pick and pop. And he was just scrapping for every board. And I think that was the first moment where KU fans were like, okay, this isn't just a guy who wants to live on the perimeter. Like he is not afraid to go down low and, and get a little dirty too. Yeah. I, uh, that's, that's what we're proud of is, you know, I, when I talked to coach Rob after that game, I'm like, it's so great to know like the reason that, that coach trusted Zach was because he needed somebody to defend, not not to go out there and bang a three. He needed somebody to guard that big guy that could shoot. So we were we were well as a staff we were like thrilled that like defensively was the reason he ended up finishing that game. And because that's what we take pride in here at Sunrise. And so um, I was pretty proud of him. And he's done a he's done a good job. He he came a long ways in like concepts and being ahead of the ball. And a lot of times early in his career with us, he'd get lost and the ball get moving and he you know he'd be late to a coverage and. But, you know, two years of reps and reps and reps and reps, he's got a, a ton better. We actually we actually down ball screens just like KU does on the side. And so he should be fairly comfortable doing those things. And so it was that was that was cool for me. And people don't realize he's got a lot of stink, man. He he yeah, he can shoot threes, but he's got he's got some serious stink to him. And he, he's competitive more than you think. He's got a smile. But when that ball is in the air, he, he competes. So same question with Grady. Remember the first time you saw him play? It was COVID. So, uh, didn't get to see him play. I was actually helping my uncle work at a grocery store and the, and the, uh, cause he was getting bombarded with everybody panicking yeah. to buy toilet paper and all the stuff for yeah. the house. And that's what I, I had gotten a call like, okay, this we're serious about making a move. And so I just had to kind of scour what I could find on, on uh, film and, and we gotten some of his game film. And then at that point, that year was the most bizarre you know, recruiting period of, of all time because you had to really trust people's words. And so um, obviously I knew Kansas was was involved and I talked to those guys about what they thought about him. And then um, Baylor was involved and I know those guys well and talked to them. And then for us, after a couple conversations and then like meeting him and his family, it was like, oh, this is this is no brainer. He's a Wichita kid. He's got obviously high high level talent and and he's a great kid and a great family, well-raised. They're a Christian family at fit it fit in a lot of angles for us. And and then really to complement the pieces that we had already on the team last year, um, you know, you have Kendall, who's a, a, one of the best athletes in the country. 
And then you have a skilled big, and then you have the number one point guard in the country, you know, another wing that can really, really shoot it fit like very ideally. And um, so that, that was, that was, that was kind of what we had to do. We kind of had to trust some people's word, get to know them a little bit. And then it was like, yeah, we got to take ready. This is, this is a perfect fit. You've seen obviously a lot of Kansas play. You, you familiar with what they like to run. How do you see Grady fitting in at Kansas? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, this is the evolution of coach self's offense has been impressive. I mean, they're drastically different than they were in, you know, for a few years with the high low stuff. And so I think early, earlier in his career, if you were a big or a point guard, you would be, you know, dumb not to go there. Um, but now you're seeing, you know, Oach and, and um, CB uh, guys that I coached in AAU a long time ago play extremely well on the wing. And um, that's some of that, that, that four game, four out, one in dribble drive uh, weave action. Like I see him fitting well because yeah, he can shoot it. Um, we give him the, the green light to shoot a shoot a thirty five footer every now and then, just because it makes people come up and guard him. And then uh, underratedly, he can put the ball on the floor and drive drive either direction. And then he finishes extremely well with both hands around the rim. So I see him, you know, offensively fitting in very very well, just with the ability to put it on the floor and drive and be big and physical and finish. Um, and then and then his his catch and shoot. He's shooting. I look at my board. I think he's shooting 48 percent from three this year. Uh, so play. That's that 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 translates. And they're not they're not just right on the high school line. There's some bombs. So and there everybody's guarding him. So th- the way he shoots the ball is high level. But he doesn't get enough credit for you know making plays off the bounce and really plays for others. Um, there's a lot of times where he gets a lot of attention, and um, you know it opens the floor up and uh, and and even times when he's not involved he's always a distraction for the other team. So we'll kind of just stand him somewhere and somebody's got to stay with them. And then like, you know, you see like Mark's had some dominant games and um, it's, we can play kind of four on four at times because you stick him somewhere and they're going to stick with him because he shoots it so well. So, um, and I think that translates. I mean, I think he's got such a quick trigger uh, things in and out of his hands quicker than most kids his age. And he's big and he's athletic. And so um, I, I think you'll see him be able to shoot the ball at a high level early in his career. Okay. Well, now I have to ask the question. You coached Oach and CB and in, in AAU. Ochai, I know what his recruiting rankings were like. Everybody does. It's a cool story. He was just named unanimous Big 12 Player of the Year. I feel like it would be silly to ask you if you saw this coming, because I don't know if anybody saw this coming. But as somebody who saw him as a a prep player, a young kid, like what did you see in him and what's it been like kind of watching his ascent to, to being one of the top players in the country? You know, in his defense, before he played for, for Mocan that summer, Ocha's defense, he, he'd only played kind of local, uh, not quite the, the, the level that, that, that EYBL team league was, was. And so, but he struggled to adjust early and like late, by the end of the summer, he was contributing positively coming off the bench. But like, it's bizarre to think he, he, I wasn't the head coach, but like we, we couldn't put him in and earlier in the, in the EYBL sessions. Cause he was so, it was like so fast for him and he hadn't been at that level yet. And the talent, I, I would say the athleticism and the, and the ability to shoot the ball, you could see right away. Like that's, this is the, the athleticism is extremely elite and he's a great, great shooter. You always thought like, if he could put it together, he could be a really nice player, but I would, be a bold-faced liar if I thought he would be the Big 12 player of the year and credit to him and the staff there at Kansas. He's worked his tail off and and he's now like 
one of the most confident dudes on the floor. And, and what, what, with our experience with him is we were trying to give him confidence and telling him, Hey man, you can go out there and be aggressive and make plays. And um, now he's, you know, he's really turned the corner there and it's pretty good. It's a great story. Cause there's not a better kid. I mean, that's, that's the cool story about it is he's, a, he's, a, he was a, a joy to coach and be around for the whole spring and summer that I was around him. So the natural question for you is, you know, you, I know you guys have nationals coming up here in a few weeks and you guys have, established yourselves as one of the top programs in the country, the number one program in the country. Are, is this where you want to be? Do you have any interest in coaching in college or is Sunrise home for you? No, this is home. Um, I, I've had some opportunities in the last four or five years um, at both the yeah, professional or, or even college level. But um, I grew up in Kansas. I, my parents were high school coaches. Uh, I used to, it's crazy how God works. I used to say, I'll never be a high school coach. I'm going to go coach in college. Uh, I don't want to be dealt the hand that I'm dealt with. I want to go be able to get the kids that I want to coach. And so my, my whole life was, I don't want to be a high school coach. And then here, here I am a high school coach. Now, obviously it's not the the typical one for your high school job that my parents are working at, but, uh, this is the right age level. The, the kids are fun to be around. There's, there's less distractions. There's, it's not a business. Um, as much as we want to, you know, say it's college basketball, that's a business, man. There's millions of dollars on the line and there ain't, it ain't that here. It's a mission We're we're truly in the purest form of basketball that you can have. Um, I think Dr. Naismith invented an unbelievable game 150 years ago with the intention to reach kids. And that's just, this is what we get to do. They're, they're 15 to 18 years old, the most vital time in their life and the most impressionable time in their life. There ain't any, any, there aren't any distractions. We really just lock in and hone in on, on their game and, and making sure that they uh, get their, their schoolwork done. And um, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I, I found my dream job at such a young age. It was great to talk to you, Luke. Congrats on all your success. Best of luck at nationals, man. Thank you. Appreciate it, Nick. Take care. I'm not sure there is anybody who watches more big 12 hoops or knows more about big 12 basketball than my next guest. Kevin Flaherty, 24-7 Sports, and CBS Sports. Uh, I want to start with just the Big 12 at large here before we get into the tournament because all year I've been having trouble putting my finger on exactly how many good teams there are in the Big 12. I know there are four that I think are good. Beyond that, I have no freaking clue. So take that wherever you will. How many good teams are in the Big 12? Yeah, and I think that it's even tougher if you if you take it and ask how many great teams there are, right? Because it it feels like at the top of the league, you know, if you're really optimistic, you could maybe say three, and if you're feeling pessimistic, you could maybe say one or or half a team or, or something like that. And so, uh, I it's it's one of the more interesting conferences I think across America, Nick, just because. I think when you when you look at you know good teams and, and there's a difference between a good team and a team that's that's tough to beat on a on a night in night out basis that can surprise you if you if you don't bring it that night or, or whatever. Um, so I would say you know four Big Twelve teams are, are probably good. There's probably a few more that hey you know if you play Iowa State or TCU you don't you don't really want to be in a situation where. You, they're getting your C game because they can beat you on that given night. But if you're asking me, you know, how many teams have a chance to make a deep NCAA tournament run, I, I really think that depends on, on who's doing the same. Like, I, I think that there are some people who would say, oh, my gosh, three 
three legitimate Final Four contenders in, in Kansas and, and Baylor and Texas Tech. And I think there are a lot of other people who would say, man, with, with the consistency you need to win four straight games, you know, are any of them really going to get there? This is a very sports talk radio question, and this isn't sports talk radio, but it's a sports podcast, and that's about as close as you can get without actually being radio. Who do you think KU's most important player is in the postseason? Who's the one guy who they can't afford to be at their worst or near their worst if they want to go on some sort of a run? So I have a two-part answer to this, and because I, I really feel like at this point right now, and this hasn't always been the answer, because I feel like if you would have asked me, a month or two into the season, I would have said Kansas' ceiling is dependent on Remy Martin, right? Like, I I feel like I would have said if Kansas is going to go to the Final Four, maybe win a national title, they don't need to just get Remy Martin. They need to get the right version of Remy Martin to get there. But I think heading into March, and March Madness, I should say, we're already in March, but I really feel like the ceiling is determined by Ochai Abaji and the floor is determined by David McCormick. Because I think that if David McCormick comes out and isn't, you know, Kansas fans kind of call him good Dave, bad Dave, if bad Dave shows up in, you know, in a matchup where, where Kansas really needs him to be there, maybe a second-round matchup if Kansas is a 2 against 7-10 or, or somebody like that, if David McCormick doesn't show up for that game, I feel like it really – takes down Kansas's floor, and if Kansas loses early, I feel like that could be one of the major factors that you look at and say, well, McCormick just didn't have it, and they needed McCormick to have it that day. But at the same time, I feel like if we're sitting here talking in a few weeks and Kansas is in the Final Four, a big part of the reason why is because Ochai Abaji played the way that he's played at certain times this year, you know, whether down the stretch against Oklahoma, whether the way he played against Texas Tech. I feel like Ochai Abaji determines the ceiling. Between the two of them, you know, this feels somewhat like, say, maybe a Sweet 16 team, an Elite 8 team. You know, I feel like is the result that you don't get upset about. Like, it's it's like an S on a grade school report card. Was it satisfactory or whatever? (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, But I think if Kansas falls short of the second weekend, the most important player, we're going to say it was David McCormick. He didn't have it. If Kansas goes beyond that second weekend, I think we're going to say the most important player was Ochai Abadji because he's probably the reason they got there. The, the second part of that is that I think a lot of people, like you mentioned with Remy Martin, would say, well, then maybe it's Dewan Harris. If Dewan Harris is going to be the point guard and he's going to get the lion's share of the minutes, then he has to play great. The difference between the one spot and the five spot for Kansas is that we know that there are quote unquote reinforcements at the one, whereas at the five, it's a dramatic drop off. No matter who you sub in for David McCormick, where I think, I think Joe Yesifu and Remy Martin can still play valuable roles. Dave needs to play 30 plus minutes a night. And that's a a big if knowing that uh, he's dealing with not only some foot issues, but now some knee issues as well. Yeah, 100%. I, I agree with you. And it's it, it's kind of funny because I, I feel like we see a lot of really great fans on, on Twitter, and one of the great things that we get is the ability to interact with, with a lot of those fans. And we also kind of kind of get the other side a little bit. And I think 
you know, Bill Self isn't infallible. There, there are certainly criticisms that you can that you can lay at his feet. You know, over the years, this year, whatever else. But one of the silliest things I, I think is the whole big man situation and everybody pounding the table for for this guy or that guy. It's not necessarily that those other guys can't play, but it feels like every time Self has tried to give guys minutes at the five and tried to get David McCormick breaks and things like that, he can't count on the same guy two nights in a row, right? Like, I'm not saying Zach Clements is bad. I think he's got a really bright future at Kansas, and he's had some really strong games. But let's be honest, Nick, is Zach Clements was that guy three games in a row? then Bill Self would play him that much. The issue is, and it's been kind of a revolving door at certain positions in those same ways, when you look at that bench as a whole, you think Bill Self doesn't want to use some of those bench players to, to maybe make it to where DeLon Harris doesn't have to play 36 minutes in the game? Of course he does. But the difference is, I think, every time a guy shows, some, shows a flash where you say, okay, it's KJ Adams time. KJ Adams is going to be the number two five. We can we can throw Mitch Lightfoot, you know, off to the side. He's the guy. You don't necessarily get that same effort over a string of games where he solidifies that position. And I think that's a big part of the reason Mitch Lightfoot plays as much as he does is Bill Self knows exactly what he can expect from Mitch Lightfoot every single night. Whereas with Clements and Adams, it's been a little bit more of a roll-the-dice situation. And one of those guys can be better than the other, depending on the night. And I think that's that's where McCormick really comes in is and why he has to play so much. It's not necessarily that McCormick is fantastic or, or whatever else. And like you said, he's he's dealing with injuries. And so, you know, you'd really like to be able to to only play him 20 minutes and find somebody else who can who can give you 20 minutes a game. But I think that's the issue there is you don't really know who you can count on on an every-night basis. And I think heading into the Big 12 tournament, one of the things that could make anybody more optimistic about this Kansas team would be whether Remy or Yesifu or one of the big guys if one of those guys over the course of three games really helps Kansas to win that Big 12 tournament title and solidifies themselves in that role heading into the NCAA tournament, I think that's where maybe you start talking about this being a Final Four team. You kind of just led me to my next question there. What do you think is the biggest thing that Kansas can gain from the Big 12 tournament in Kansas City? Yeah, I, I think that's it. I I do. I also think you know Ochai Abaji has been slumping a little bit lately. I think some of that comes from um, a need to take more and more difficult shots at, at times. Because how many times this year has Kansas been in danger zone and Ochai Abaji just hits the three and, and it gets them through that situation? The difference in the last few games has been Ochai Abaji is still taking that three but it hasn't gone in. And so I think Ochai refinding his stroke has to be up there. But I really think the biggest thing that Kansas could gain would be finding those guys on the bench that Bill Self knows he can count on to where 
Bill Self isn't going to play 11 or 12 guys, and certainly not 11 or 12 guys major minutes. But if he can find a sixth guy and a seventh guy where he says, okay, this guy is my no doubt number one big off the bench, and I can count on him doing that. If one of the backup KU big men, and I'm not saying they have to be all conference, but if they can have a Silvio DeSosa type tournament where you went into the tournament being unsure about Silvio and you came out of the tournament feeling like, okay, Kansas has something here, I think that's where the biggest gain is for this team. I know what will happen, and what will happen is Bill Self is going to coach to win, and he's going to coach like it's the NCAA tournament. You, you mentioned he's un, infallible, and I'm not necessarily meaning that as a criticism because, like you said, there are things to gain from attacking each game and each event like it is your last and learning how to win and all that stuff. If you were him, though, are you looking at Dave and his health and knowing how much you're going to lean on him in the tournament? And are you, are you even considering resting him or limiting his minutes in Kansas City? If it were me, yes. I would absolutely limit David McCormick's minutes. And part of the reason why is, one, you know, it may help him a little bit to get a little more rest. That's certainly part of it. But the other part is, like I said, you have to find out, I feel like, what you have at those at those other spots. And so I absolutely think that that's something I would look at. Now, we've heard Bill Self already talk about, hey, if we play well at the Big 12 tournament, there's a possible one seed, you know, and one seeds, you know, potentially having an easier road to uh, to at least the Elite Eight or, or whatever else. And so, when you look at it from that standpoint, I get why he wants to coach to win. And I, and I, quite frankly, I don't think Bill Self has it in him to not. And I think even even when Kansas was was playing earlier this year, I think there were opportunities for maybe guys to get in and play major roles in in clutch minutes where you could understand or learn a little bit more about about what they have. And Bill Self plays the starting five for the final six minutes or or whatever. And, and, And so I do think that it's unlikely a little bit that, that we see that, you know, maybe if, if McCormick is really struggling, then Self will say, okay, take, take the games off. We can, we can go ahead and, and try and pull this out, you know, without you. But I think that, uh, I think it would definitely benefit Kansas to, to keep McCormick's minutes down because you, you know what you have there. And we've seen But do you though? Different. Let me ask you that just to play devil's advocate. Sure. Because I think one of the big theories, and it's one that I probably hold, is that McCormick, maybe more than anybody on this team, rides waves of confidence. And when he is down, he plays really poorly. We've seen that at the beginning of both of the last two seasons. But when he is up, like he is right now, like he was on Saturday against Texas, he's a game changer. And knowing that he's riding that wave of confidence, I wonder, like, do you want to mess with that at all? Not saying that taking him off the court is going to kill his confidence, but just sort of capitalizing on this on this wave of momentum that he's riding right now. Sure, and we and we saw a little bit of that last year uh, at the end of the year when he was playing with a lot of confidence. You know, they sat him. You know, with I mean, <laughs> they didn't have a choice, but you had the COVID thing. And then he comes back and is totally dominant in his first action back against Eastern Washington. 
And so I, I do think that there's a little bit of precedent there of his confidence staying high even after sitting for, for a little bit, like a week or so. And so I, I, I 100% get what you're saying. And he is a player that, you know, football coaches would say when his dauber is up, you know, he's, he's somebody that, that can impact a game in a way that, that not a lot of KU guys can and certainly not the other KU big men. But I do think that we've seen in the past that if he's ended on a high note and then you sit him for a little bit, you know, he did come back and play exceptionally well coming off that break. And so it, I, I do think there's a little bit of precedent there. Let me ask you something going back to the end of last season for Kansas when Bill Self came out very astutely said, or very, I should say, very explicitly said <laughs> that they wanted to go out and get more athletic. They wanted to get quicker, wanted to get more explosive. Sure. You fast forward to this year, and the starting five of the main rotation is made up of guys that were already on the team in the rotation a season ago. And the fast, explosive, athletic guys you got, namely Joe Yesifu and Remy Martin from the transfer portal, are coming off the bench. Now, they, they, have, they have roles on this team, but it remains to be seen how expansive those roles are going to be in the NCAA tournament. What can be learned from that? What should we take away from that reality? You know, it's one of the things that that people didn't look at really heading into the season overall, I feel like in college basketball is that prior to this season and this wild transfer portal off season that we had prior to that immediately eligible transfers didn't, typically come in and star at the level they were at before. And you saw most of the guys that had a lot of success as transfers, right? That Malik Newman came out at the end of the year and was one of the best players in America down the stretch. You know, Diedrich Lawson, uh, you look nationally, you know, a guy like Malachi Flynn was, was a transfer. Those guys were all sit-out guys. And so they had a chance to sit out, learn the system, all of those things, and typically when we saw even high-profile guys go elsewhere, you look at Reed Travis, everybody had that guy on their first-team All-America team when he went to Kentucky from Stanford. You look at Kerry Blackshear Jr. when he left Virginia Tech on a high note and went to Florida, everybody said, oh my gosh, Florida was only missing a center. This guy is going to kill it. And not that either player was bad, but they weren't necessarily playing at the same level they were before. And... While we've had some transfers play really well this year, I think that's just because there were so many of them, right? Like some of them had to had to pan out at at a really high level this year because there were just there there were too many too many bites at the pie. But I think that's one of the things about the transfer portal, and it's actually funny because Eric Musselman said this to me in my piece on, on transfers and. For, for CBS Sports, one of the things that he said was he goes, he goes, you can't find stars in the transfer portal. And he said, he said there are a few of them, maybe. He goes, but that's that's not where you find your star players. And so looking at that, I think a lot of us looked at, at Yesifu and then looked at, at Remy Martin specifically. 
and felt like, hey, this this guy's going to come in and be a program changer, et cetera. And you can list different reasons or whatever else, but that's the thing is with these transfers who come in and are immediately eligible, there's usually a reason or two, whether it's, you know, new surroundings, new system, new coaches, new teammates, you know, injuries, whatever else, it's really tough for them to live up to the hype. And so I think that, that that's a big part of it. Now, into something else, I know that this is a really long answer to that question, but something else that I think is, is really interesting on this being more athletic front, Nick, is I really feel like if Kansas is going to have success in the NCAA tournament, one of the things that they're going to have to do is get good minutes from either Remy Martin or Joe Yesifu. And when you look at the best Bill Self teams, and when you look at all of the national champions going back to probably like 2012 Kentucky, they've all had a smaller second guard who was a combo guard type guy who could play some point guard, you know, who added to the skill level, the ball handling, everything else. And when you look at Kansas's best lineups this year, a lot of them involve either Remy Martin at the, at the two next to Dewan Harris or Dewan Harris next to Joseph Yesifu. And so they don't necessarily have to start. But I do think that at least one of them is going to have to play a major role in order for Kansas to meet expectations this year. Yeah, I agree. I just, I guess I'm not holding my breath on it. It's sure. I don't know. It's kind of like I feel like with the transfer portal, we sort of shifted it from you know bringing in a, an 18 year old kid. You would say, oh well, the transfer portal guy because he's a senior, he's ready. Like he's college ready. He's proven himself at this level. You know, he can play right away. And I even convinced myself of that stuff, just sort of blindly said, okay, well, he's played Division One at a high level, so we know he can fit right in. When in reality, it's like, well, maybe if they're built the right way and if they are malleable, because it's kind of like teaching your grandma how to use an iPad. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, they've been around. They know how to do certain things, but they know how to do certain things a certain way. And I think the unteaching of the old habits is sometimes a hindrance into teaching guys how you want them to play in your system, and we're seeing that at Kansas. It's not always the case because other schools are having success, but specifically with Kansas, knowing how hard-headed Bill Self is as a coach and how demanding he is as a coach, it might not be the easiest system for new guys to come in and adapt to in one season. Yeah, 100%. You know, And it's funny because you had three Big 12 schools bring in you know, power conference, all conference point guards. You know, you had Kim Joe coming in to Baylor, who was all conference in the Pac-12. You had Remy Martin coming into Kansas, who was all Pac-12. Then you had Marcus Carr coming into Texas, who was all Big Ten. And I, I think when I looked at that, I felt like one of those guys would probably be successful, and, and maybe the others would either not be as successful or, or at least struggle to live up to expectations. I'll be honest with you, I kind of felt like Remy Martin maybe had the best chance heading in, but I always kind of felt like one of the three would, would hit, and I didn't think it would be Akinjo. And it has been James Akinjo, and I know you know his, his efficiency numbers in the Big 12 and stuff aren't, aren't as great, but he was playing through injuries, playing through an injured roster, all of those different things. 
But Akinjo was arguably the most malleable of those three, like you were talking about. You know, it wasn't, it's not necessarily that Akinjo is better than Remy Martin or better than Marcus Carr. It's more that Akinjo was the guy who fit in and plugged in the best, and that's why he's had more success than the other two guys have. Kevin Flaherty, National College Basketball Writer, 24-7 Sports, CBS Sports. Always good to catch up with you, man. Thanks for the time. Thanks a lot, Nick. This episode of Wave in the Weed is brought to you by Home Field Apparel. If you've been listening, you know my affinity for Home Field. It is the most premium, officially licensed collegiate athletic gear known to man. And now they have launched their Kansas collection with 14 items, t-shirts, tank tops, hoodies, all your favorite old school logos, the 1941 World War II Jayhawk, the sexy leg Jayhawk. They've got all of it. It is the comfiest gear you'll ever wear. I'm always rocking the Slippery Rock, the Colorado School of Mines, the UC Irvine Surfing Anteater t-shirt. People always ask me, why do you wear it? Well, first off, the logos are cool. They're great conversation starters. Look, you just asked me about it. Case in point. But beyond that, you buy it for the first time for the cool logos, then you try it on. That's what's going to keep you looking for excuses to buy more because you want everything in your closet to feel as comfortable as the gear from Homefield Apparel does. I would go check it out now because last I checked, the Kansas stuff was selling like hotcakes. It was selling out all the cool stuff. The circus font crew neck, the 1941 World War II Jayhawk, the sexy legs Jayhawk, all of this stuff is going. There's actually a Wave the Wheat t-shirt. How topical is that? And because you're a listener of this podcast, I've got a special offer for you. You can get 15% off your first order at checkout when you use the code Nick. That's 15% off your first order at Homefield when you use the code Nick. That's N-I-C-K at homefieldapparel.com. All right, mailbag time. If you ever have a question for me, just send it to me on Twitter at Nick underscore Schwartz. Maybe I'll set up an email as well for those of you who have somehow found this podcast, which I literally only advertise or promote on Twitter somewhere else. I'll, I'll set up a, a personal email account just for the mailbag. But for now, we're going to stick to the Twitter questions. First up, after seeing Silvio and Chattanooga win the SoCon Championship, I was thinking and wanted to know your opinion. Do you think Silvio would have made an impact for this year's team? Would Kansas be better? the same, etc. Silvio's story at, at Chattanooga has been pretty awesome to follow after a guy who went through so much at Kansas and then decided to sit out for a season, transfers, goes to Chattanooga, and is having an incredible season. He got injured a little bit throughout this year. He missed uh, like a five or six game stretch, but he played about 20 minutes per game, 11 points, Seven rebounds per. And I'm just, I'm just looking at some of the numbers. Uh, what he does, right? We know what he did. It was hustle plays, offensive rebounds, putbacks, and dunks. KU had 99 dunks this year. It was roughly 9% of their field goals. That ranked 22nd amongst high major teams. If we look at just all close shots, dunks, tips, layups, they had 464 of them as a team. That number means nothing to you, but I'm going to give you some context now. Here you go. That number. 
ranked sixth amongst high major teams. It was 11th nationally, but sixth if we're just looking at the power conference teams. So KU got more shots at or around the rim than just about anybody in the country. That was their bread and butter. This is why the offense posted elite numbers. It's why you look at the offense sometimes and you say, what's wrong with it? Yet all the advanced metrics would suggest it's one of the elite offenses in the country. It's because they get everything in close. Because Dave's a great offensive rebounder. So a lot of times, their made shots are coming from two feet away from the rim. It's because Ochai and CB and Jalen are so great at driving, getting downhill, scoring at the rim, scoring in transition. Those are the easy buckets. But Bill Self likes getting easy buckets at the rim. The reason why I bring that up is because that's all that Silvio does. He had 23 dunks this year. He was 91 of 139 at the rim. 91 shots at the rim for for Silvio, who only played 27 games. And he only played 20 minutes per. He only averaged 11 points per game. Right? So across the board, he played less, he played less minutes, he scored less than David McCormick did. Yet he had 91 made field goals at the rim compared to Dave's 68. Had he qualified, he would have been a top 20 rebounder in the country as well. Again, he just didn't play enough, but... The offensive rebounding numbers were really, really good. I'm saying all this to say that Silvio DeSosa would have absolutely played a role in this team. He would have absolutely been the, the second big coming off the bench. There would have been no questions about KJ Adams or Zach Clemens or even Mitch Lightfoot if Silvio were on this team. I know he is a raw player, right? Like sometimes he's not as polished as you would like to see but he would have fit in so perfectly as this first big off the bench, the second big in the rotation. He would have alleviated a lot of the concerns that Kansas had down low this year. Next question. The 2018 Final Four team had an Ochai-like Conference Player of the Year and first-team All-American, Devontae Graham. They had a compliment in Svee that set the single-season record for threes. They had a partial doke. He was injured, had the knee injuries. But the guy that made that March run was Malik. Is there a Malik on this squad? Let's look back at at Malik's year at Kansas because it was so much defined by what he did in March that it almost made it seem like he was bad during the regular season, which he wasn't. And I'm not saying that you're saying this, the person who asked this question. But I feel like even myself, I look back on that year and I say, wow, he was a completely different player, which he was. He averaged... 22 and a half points between the Big 12 tournament and the NCAA tournament. But he was still a really good player in the regular season. Malik averaged 12 points per game in the regular season. He was playing about 30 minutes per game. He shot 37% from three. I don't know if you're insinuating that you think you have an idea of who that could be on this team. I know a lot of people think that maybe it could be Remy Martin. Maybe it could be Joe Yesifu because those are the guys who had underwhelming regular seasons, but showed flashes. Could they have really impressive postseasons? Since returning from injury, Remy Martin is averaging eight minutes per game. He scored nine points total in four games. In that same time frame, Joe Yesifu is averaging eight minutes per game as well, and he has scored a total of seven points in those four games. So Remy Martin and Joe Yesifu, the last four games, are combining for about 16 minutes per and have scored a grand total of 16 points in four games. I'm not saying that either one of those guys can't elevate their play and have a really good game in March where they help Kansas out. 
In fact, I think Kansas is going to need it at some point. But to think that either one of them are capable of doing what Malik did, where for a an eight-game stretch, he averaged 23 points per game and was Kansas's best player. He wasn't just Kansas's best player. He was the best player in the country in the postseason. There's nobody on this team that can do that. The only player on this team that's capable of playing like that is the one who's already been playing like that, and that's Ochai Baji. And again, I'm not trying to, to put words in your mouth or saying that you, you were asking this. If you're simply asking, like, who can be the guy to come alive and really elevate his play in March, to me, it's an obvious answer. It's Jalen Wilson. Like, you look at the numbers, and they're actually not that dissimilar from what Malik Newman was doing. Jalen this year averaging about 11 points per game, playing 28 minutes. So, right, he already has the carved-out role, just like Malik did. Malik was... Kansas's third best player, fourth best player. Maybe that's where you have Jalen Wilson on this team. And much like Malik, like Malik had games where he played really well in the regular season. He was just super inconsistent. Couldn't the same be said about Jalen Wilson? I mean, I'm just going to look real quick. Uh, box score surfing. He had one, two, three 20 point games this year. How many double doubles? Has Jalen Wilson had one, two, three, four, four double doubles? But he had like the games where he had like two points and 15 rebounds, like weird stuff like that. He's shown flashes of being a really, really effective player. And much like Malik, Jalen's not the guy anybody's game planning for. They're game planning for Ochai, they're game planning for Dave, to a lesser extent, Christian Brown. Jalen, to me, is the obvious candidate for a guy who already has a role. So you know he's going to be on the court. The baseline's still pretty high, but the, the ceiling is high as well. Like It wouldn't shock me if Jalen had a couple games across the course of the Big 12 and the NCAA tournament where he could give you 20-plus. And maybe that's what this team will need because if at least recent history is any indicator, there are going to be nights where Dave and Ochai just don't have it, and those are going to be the nights where other guys have to step up. If you're making me put my eggs into one basket, it's going to be the guy who has stepped up already at points this year. Okay, next question. KU, does KU need to make the finals of the Big 12 tournament to be a one seed, or do they just need to get further than Baylor? You know, if either one of those teams win the Big 12 tournament, they're going to be a lock for the one seed. It's the best conference in the country. And for Kansas's sake... Yeah, they, they both, they, they shared the Big 12 title. So you win the Big 12 regular season title and you win the conference postseason title, you're going to be a one seed. Right now, Baylor's got the inside track because I think their resume is just a little bit better. I'm, I'm, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't pay any attention to net the net ranking at all, at all. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you a damn thing about a single quadrant. I, I had no idea. I have not checked it one time, nor will I. It's stupid. It's pointless. The NCAA tried to convince you that they came up with this new system that's better than the old one. It makes absolutely no sense. Like the idea that, I mean, the whole thing, like the quadrants where it goes from 25 to uh, 26 or 30 to 31, like the the cutoff line between what's a quadrant one and a quadrant two, it's completely arbitrary. It makes no sense. It's like telling me that the 25th best team in the country is objectively better than the 26th or that the 30th best team in the country is objectively better than the 31st. It's so stupid. So I don't pay any attention to it at all. I just had to get that out there, a mini rant on why the net ranking is a useless pile of dog shit. 
it means nothing to me. With that being said, um, if I'm just looking at Bracket Matrix, KU is the first two seed. Again, I don't even want to look at Lenardi. I just look at Bracket Matrix, which compiles all of these. Um, you know, Gonzaga doesn't win the, the West Coast Conference Tournament. I think they probably fall to the two-line. Um, Auburn, if they fall, maybe Kentucky jumps up and passes them. Arizona's the big one. If Arizona falls and Kansas loses in a nail-biter to Baylor in the Big 12 Tournament... I could see Kansas getting in. So, I mean, yeah, you win the Big 12 tournament, you're in. Baylor falls short, then you would think, well, you're in chances of winning the Big 12 tournament just went up. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, win and you're in if you're Kansas. But I, I still think there's an outside chance where they could lose in the championship game to Baylor and st- still sneak in. They'd need some help, but it's not like out of the realm of possibility. Okay, final question. What are the odds of Nigel Pack entering the transfer portal at the end of the season? I'd put it at at least 70-30. So the context here, K-State loses to West Virginia on Wednesday night. That was probably Bruce Weber's last game at Kansas State. Uh, Third straight losing season. Ten seasons in Manhattan. Five tournament appearances. He had the Elite Eight run in 2018. Two conference titles. But he also had four losing seasons in a decade. Most guys in power conferences aren't keeping their jobs, and then you have three straight losing seasons. Yeah, it's going to be the nail in the coffin. K-State is not an easy place to win. It's not necessarily an excuse for Bruce Weber because at this point it's more of just a time for change sort of thing. The problem that Bruce Weber runs into, and, and, I, and I, there was weird, this weird thing going on on Twitter on Wednesday night where he had the very emotional six-minute speech after the game where... At first, he sort of took a shot at KU or took a shot at Bill Self or anybody who was caught up in the FBI stuff because he said he told a friend that he was going to grow his hair out uh, until something happened to the guys in the FBI, which is, dude, it's such a bullshit story. Nobody does that unless you're looking for attention. And nobody says that unless you're looking for attention. And even if you want to sit there and say, which everybody is doing, like everyone in college basketball loves Bruce Weber, people I like. Like, people I respect, people I talk to, friends of mine in the business are sitting there talking about how Bruce Weber is such a stand-up guy. He's a class act. Everybody likes him. He treats everybody the right way. Fantastic, because I'm sure there are a lot of coaches out there who are not that way. I don't have anything against Bruce Weber. I would sum it up most succinctly by saying he is a shitty recruiter and a phenomenal coach. Right? He has made a lot out of lesser players. But the part about being a shitty recruiter is that you don't play the game that everybody else wants to, and that's why Bruce Weber has the sterling reputation that he does of always playing by the rules. And that's great, but that's also why you're out of a job now. Now, that doesn't do anything to his legacy. Like, if that's what you want your reputation to be, that you did it everything the right way, you never bent the rules, you never engaged in any shady recruiting practices, then that's fantastic. And history will remember you well for that. But history will also just remember what you did. You don't get a boost at the end of your career because you did things the right way. You don't get extra bonus points. And the idea that that somehow masks all the dumb shit that he's done and said over the years, which has constantly reeked of, Give me credit. Please give me credit for all the things that I'm doing. Give me credit for the fact that I'm doing things the right way. He may be a great guy. Like a lot of people may like him, and that's fantastic. 
it's one thing to just say that like, oh, it's kind of a silly guy. He just says some weird things. Like he literally started his press conference by saying, I'm growing out my hair. I told my friend I'm growing out my hair until somebody from somebody from like the FBI stuff gets in trouble. How about the how about the 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 shoe reps and the assistant coaches that are in fucking prison right now, Bruce, for doing nothing? What is your point that you want all of these guys to be pushed out? Like, like you grew your hair out to own somebody. The whole FBI investigation was an absolute joke to begin with. Kids and assistant coaches are being punished to like the fullest extent of the law for defrauding. Are you for defrauding these schools? It's a joke. The whole thing was a joke to begin with. And now you want to thump your chest because you played the game the right way and then like you get you should get some bonus points and at the end of your career at the end of your tenure at Kansas State when you had four losing seasons and you got out of the first weekend one time I'm supposed to say well at least he lost doing it the right way dude nobody gives a shit I'm sorry this is not the movies I'm, I got off on a rant here that I didn't actually think I was going to get on, but I hate this idea that you just get these bonus points for for not playing the game. And then to just say, please give me bonus points, right? Like, look what I did. Like, I always did it the right way. You can act like you're doing it the right way, but then when you constantly take shots under the table and these little passive-aggressive remarks about other people, it sort of negates all the good-natured stuff you did that preceded it. But back to the original question. Nigel Pack, uh, 17 points per game, 44% from three, high volume on a bad team where everyone's game planning to stop you and you don't ever turn the ball over? Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. You put it at 70-30, I would put it at about 95-5. Unless Nigel Pack just loves Manhattan. Nigel Pack, I keep saying his name wrong. Unless he loves Manhattan or they literally let him single-handedly handpick the next head coach, I would imagine he's going to hit the open market because he can go wherever he wants. A point guard that doesn't turn it over and shoots 44% from three, everybody who needs a point guard in college basketball next year will come calling for him. At very, I mean, and this is a perfect situation now that your coach is probably out. So yeah, Nigel Peck, yeah, I'd put it in 95-5 for him to go, okay, well, I didn't plan on spending that much time on Bruce Weber, but we got going and now we're done. Please subscribe rate and review. I wish I could tell you more, but let me just tell you right now. The guests we have lined up next week are going to be unbelievable. I we have the most insane lineup of guests next week. I think you guys are going to absolutely love it. So if you haven't subscribe because you need these episodes the second they go live. They may even go live earlier than normal, knowing that it's Selection Sunday, the brackets are going to be coming out, right? It's that time of year. So I may even post these earlier than normal. Also, leave me a review. I checked the reviews, man. There was like 19 reviews on iTunes. I see the download numbers. There's, There's way more of you listening that are actually leaving reviews. And I say it at the end of every episode. Maybe it's a throwaway line, but come on. We need, we need the review numbers to match the download numbers. It's a thank you, but also a can you do one extra thing for me because it really does help. Thank you so much for listening. Tell your friends. 
send a telegram, send a, a carrier pigeon, a raven. Let everybody know that next week's guest lineup is going to blow your mind if you are a KU fan. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.